Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, the first of three Little Atom specials for the 2015 Royal Society Winton Prize for Science Books. Coming up, Jim Al-Khalili and John J. McFadden on Life on the Edge and John Butterworth on Smashing Physics Inside the World's Biggest Experiment. Professor Jim Al-Khalili, OBE, is an academic author and broadcaster. He's a leading theoretical physicist based at the University of Surrey, where he teaches and carries out research in quantum mechanics. He has written a number of popular science books, including Pathfinders, The Golden Age of Arabic Science, which you might remember we've talked about on a previous Little Atoms, and he's presented several television and radio documentaries, including the BAFTA-nominated Chemistry, A Volatile History, and The Secret Life of Chaos. And Professor John Joe McFadden is Professor of Molecular Genetics at the University of Surrey and is the editor of leading textbooks on both molecular biology and systems biology of tuberculosis. For over a decade, he has specialised in examining tuberculosis and meningitis, inventing the first successful molecular test for the latter. He is the author of Quantum Evolution and co-editor of Human Nature, Fact and Fiction, and writes for The Guardian on topics including GM crops, psychedelic drugs and quantum mechanics. Together, they are the authors of Life on the Edge, The Coming of Age of Quantum Biology, which has been shortlisted for the 2015 Royal Society Winton Prize for Science Books, so, Jim and John Joe, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank Thanks you. for coming in to tell me about it. It's a relatively new field, quantum biology. So, um, somebody tell me, tell me what it is, Jim. What's give me a brief description of what it means? Okay. Well, first of all, you say it's a relatively new field. In writing the book, we traced back the origins mm-hmm. of quantum biology, and it goes back to the early 1930s. Soon after the development of quantum mechanics, physics sort of strode out of their mm-hmm. labs and, and, and uh, offices with arrogance, thinking, well, we've solved all the problems of physics and chemistry. What else is there to do? Let's solve the problem of biology. And, of course, molecular biology and genetics was just beginning then. Uh, but it didn't really go anywhere. Mm-hmm. What's happened in the last few years, in the last decade or so, is that there have been some very careful and ingenious experiments, mostly carried out by biochemists, that have found that there are indeed certain aspects or phenomena uh, within living cells that can only really be explained through quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. So quantum biology, this new field that's now growing slowly, tentatively, and quite conservatively, to be honest, because it's a speculative area, is all about looking for non-trivial quantum effects within living systems. And I, I want to go back to the early days, really. So, so one of the fathers of quantum mechanics, Erwin Schrödinger, wrote a book, What is Life?, which is sort of one of the first flowerings of, of this field. So, John Joe, what was, 
Let's talk about that book and what he, what he said. Yes, uh, Schrodinger was um, very influential in uh, stimulating a lot of people to think very deeply about biology. And he became interested in uh, biology and particularly heredity. That's uh, the uh, passage of genetic information from one generation to the next. And when he was thinking about uh, the problem... Uh, this was before Watson and Crick, before the nature of a gene was discovered. They didn't even know what genes were made of. But um, they did uh, know that genes were inherited very faithfully. And this was a problem to Schrodinger because he knew that in the classical laws of which uh, most of physics, most of classical physics is based at least, you need to have, uh, to get accuracy, you need lots and lots of particles to get rid of the random movement of individual particles. You need to average them out with a big lump of matter. And uh, the estimates for the size of gene were very small. It should only have, uh, you know, a few dozen or a hundred or so particles within a gene. Um, so he thought, and he wasn't so far off. And that didn't make sense to him. Genes shouldn't be inherited so uh, accurately. So he proposed that uh, the uh, fidelity of heredity was based on quantum mechanics. And he went on to make a more kind of general claim that maybe many of what of the characteristics of life that make it so special were to do with, with the, um, well, not fact, but the, his claim that it was rooted in the quantum realm. And uh, uh, because it was dealing with small numbers of particles, uh, it was taking advantage of uh, quantum mechanics, uh, which the classical world can't really do because uh, uh, the quantum mechanical effects are washed out <laughs> in big objects. Everyone listening to this show will have heard of Erwin Schrödinger. Indeed, I think we've talked about that book on this on this show before. But there's a less well-known but rather colourful figure in the early days, a guy called Pascal Jordan. Tell us who he was. Yes, um, German physicist. Uh, he worked, in fact, with some of the other great pioneers of quantum mechanics, Max Born and, and Werner Heisenberg. He was sort of the, the lesser known one of the, the triumvirate, but uh, he worked on, on what now, we now call matrix mechanics. Mm-hmm. In, the early, in the mid-1920s, the mathematical foundation of quantum theory, and uh, highly regarded for that work. He then started to ask the question, as a few physicists at the time were doing, in the late 20s, early 30s, as to whether quantum mechanics might play a role in biology, mm-hmm. and even suggested, uh, along the lines which Schrodinger would then take up a decade or so later, that it may be that life is special because it has some quantum origin. The problem, and you're right in calling it rather calling him shady, the problem with Pascal Jordan is that he was a Nazi. Uh, and not just in a you know general sympathiser mm-hmm. sort of way, keeping your head down. No, he was a fully paid-up fascist. And he sort of felt that somehow his ideas in, in sort of marrying quantum mechanics with biology was all tied up and wrapped up with his political ideology mm-hmm. in a way that just made the whole subject tainted. In the same way, though less well-known as the eugenics movement sure. after, after the war, quantum biology suffered from the disrepute that Pascal Jordan had as, mm-hmm. as, as, a, as a scientist, uh, and which is the, probably one of the main reasons why it went into abeyance for so many decades. Well, that's but, where I wanted to get us to, really, with this idea that, you know, that, that it was somehow tainted. And, but interestingly, there are, you know, there are other people that are have been disregarded for different reasons, like Lamarck, for instance, that, that are sort of coming back into, into fashion almost. Well, if we go back to Jordan, although his, his work was tainted, there were insights in Jordan's work which are still extraordinarily interesting. But he gave them, as Jim described, a kind of na- a Nazi twist. 
he made a claim that um, life was dependent on what he called an amplification principle. Mm-hmm. And that is that events that are going on at the quantum level were kind of amplified by life. And that's why, what made life so special. It depended on these molecular events going on at the quantum level that biochemistry and the mechanisms of the cell and its machinery amplified them. And he compared them to the Führer. He said that uh, life was a bit like uh, a nation ruled by the Führer, where uh, the actions of a, small, of a single individual can make a big difference to the whole, whole cell and the whole organism. So his whole science became kind of infected with this uh, um, uh, with this idea, and that's, as Jim said, why it became very controversial and, uh, and faded somewhat. But as you say, other scientists like Lamarck, uh, he had some crazy ideas about uh, inheritance of acquired characteristics, and now we talk about it in epigenetics. Mm-hmm. So ideas can come and go, and uh, uh, Lamarck wasn't, there, wasn't a Nazi, so <laughs> <he's>, <laughs> he has much to uh, recommend him compared to uh, Jordan. <laughs> At a basic level, the, the, the quantum world is you know, present in all matter, we're made of matter, everything is made of, you know, everything is made of matter, inanimate objects and objects with life, but we are talking here about life particularly, and you talk in this book about how you know, quantum biology is basically sort of bridging the Newtonian world that we all live in and recognise, and the quantum world, so tell me, tell me more about why life. Yeah, I mean, the one thing we have to make clear is that of course, life, living organisms, are made of atoms, trillions of atoms mm-hmm. fitted together, molecules and larger and larger systems and so on. But so is all inanimate matter. So is everything in the universe. And so an obvious question is, well, look, why should quantum mechanics be special in living systems but not in inanimate matter yeah. of equivalent complexity in terms of number of particles? Why is there sort of thermodynamics down at the deep level? And here we're talking about the, the structure and order of quantum rules. And what we don't mean by quantum biology is that, of course, ultimately, life and organisms are made of atoms. Atoms obey the laws of quantum mechanics. Therefore, quantum mechanics underpins life. Well, of course it does. It underpins everything in the universe. By quantum biology, we mean something quite different. In a physics lab, if I want to see a quantum mechanism or quantum phenomena at work, I need to be very careful. I need to isolate my system from its surrounding environment. I need to probably cool it down to absolute zero, mm-hmm. carry out my experiments in a vacuum, just to make sure I can see that delicate quantum wave-particle duality, quantum coherence, entanglement, and so on. Quantum biology says that in living cells, despite their complexity, their noisiness, the messiness... so many thousands of chemical reactions and everything going on, a living cell is a very, very busy place, still quantum effects can maintain themselves for biological lengths of time. And that's what's so surprising and almost hard to believe for many scientists. And yet experiments are showing somehow life has figured out a way to utilise quantum weirdness in this way. I just want to expand on that a little bit. What Jim's just said, because if he's in his lab doing this experiment, going down to the quantum level to look at something, one of the things that people might be familiar with about the quantum world is, you know, Jim looks at it, it changes. You know, it's like there's all of these weird things about the quantum world, particles that can be in two places at once, particles behaving like waves. Um, I can't be in two places at once. You know, how could these weird things translate themselves up to the, up to the macro level, I guess? Well, this is, I think, the insight that uh, both Schrodinger and uh, Jordan had, that life uniquely depends on small numbers of particles. And uh, 
you compare it to a conventional uh, machine, for instance, say a steam engine, now the actions of a steam engine depend on trillions of particles. When the pistons are pushed up and down, it's trillions of particles. And the movement that you see, the mechanism, depends on their average motion. Now there are things in, in your body, for instance the colour of your eyes, mm-hmm. that depends on a single molecule, one that you inherited from your mother or your father. There's nothing in the inanimate world that has that sensitivity mm-hmm. to that quantum level. Because once you start talking about individual molecules, you ask a physicist, well, what science do you need to deal with individual molecules when you need quantum mechanics? So it's because the dynamics of individual molecules, particles moving from one place to another, individual particles, make a difference in life. Effects that you can't see in um, most of the inanimate world, unless you do, as Jim said, try very, very hard. And one of the first uh, signs that quantum mechanics was was going on in life was when scientists did exactly that. They looked for, uh, well, they weren't really looking for uh, quantum effects, but they discovered inside living cells or inside living uh, systems from living cells quantum phenomena that they would normally not expect to be there Mm -hmm. in the experiment at that kind of temperature, in that kind of complexity of matter. And yet they saw quantum mechanics. I'm Gaia Vince, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jim Al-Khalili and John Joe McFadden. We're talking about their book Life on the Edge, The Coming of Age of Quantum Biology, which has been shortlisted for the Royal Society Winton Prize for Science Books this year. And so in this second part, I want to look at some of the examples that you look at in the book to sort of introduce some of the quantum phenomena that we see in quantum biology. But first of all, another character from the book, Luca Turing, and the ideas of how quantum biology might affect how we smell. So, John Joe, would you like to talk? Yeah, um, uh, Luca Turing was a scientist who had a fascination with smell and did uh, a lot of research into uh, the nature of smell and actually building on other earlier work and uh, puzzles about smell. What, ha- what happens when we smell something is a molecule uh, floats into our nose, attaches to our cells in, in the back of our nose, and these cells pick up the molecules, the odorants, and recognise them and send a signal to our brain. But there are lots of puzzles about it uh, that we don't really quite understand. Molecules that um, uh, look pretty much the same often have very different smells, and molecules that look very different can have the same smell. And these puzzles led Luca Turin, well, actually led other scientists before uh, Luca to uh, uh, examine this question. And although the the principal uh, theory about how cells recognise odorants is by their shape. So the shape of a molecule determines its smell. And this is called uh, lock and key mechanism. Mm -hmm. So the lock goes into the key, and if it's the right shape, it will... 
uh, fire the right signal. Luca Turin and other scientists before him uh, realised there were problems with that and came up with a, another idea, and that is that the vibrations of molecules, the vibrations between atoms, are what is detected. Now that worked for explaining some of the puzzling phenomena about odorants, but no one really knew how you would have a spectrophotometer, which is how we detect vibrations in the nose. And this is where Luca came in. He came up with an idea in which quantum tunneling, this is this ability of uh, particles to penetrate uh, impenetrable barriers, otherwise impenetrable barriers, uh, he proposed that quantum tunneling was involved. And actually what happens when an odorant meets its receptor in the back of the nose is it promotes a quantum tunneling event where a particle electron hops from one place to another and this weird ability for it to disappear essentially in one place and appear in another place. So that's purely a quantum mechanical phenomenon. He proposed this and uh, it was a fairly speculative proposal but he did then make some predictions and one of the predictions was that some odorants, if you replaced hydrogen with deuterium, in some odorants, it should make a difference to the vibrations. Mm -hmm. And when he did that, made odorants, which were ordinary odorants, where hydrogen was hydrogen, and then other uh, odorants where it was replaced with a heavier atom of deuterium, he found that fruit flies could smell the difference. And so far, at least, only quantum mechanics can account for that. And it still remains a controversial finding, and uh, other uh, scientists need to repeat this uh, work. But um, um, it uh, can't be accounted for by the shape theory because the shape of the molecule should be exactly the same. Jim, there's a lovely example in this book about robins and how robins migrate, how they travel backwards and forwards between Africa and Europe every year. And this introduces us to the idea of quantum entanglement. So let's mm. talk about how robins migrate. Yeah, we, we actually start off in the very first chapter talking about the migration of the European robin just because it's such a lovely mm. story. And yet it's probably on the more speculative end of quantum phenomena. There's, there are other examples that are better established, not as controversial. The idea that robins and other birds, uh, marine animals, sea turtles, insects, you know, the monarch butterfly in North America, a lot of these creatures migrate and gain directional information by being sensitive to the Earth's magnetic field. That in itself sounds wacky. You know, that by itself, you think, well, hang on a minute, you're, you're, you know, this is pseudoscience. Mm. But that's been established since the 1970s. Yeah. The mystery was, how does the European robin know which way to fly? It senses the Earth's magnetic field, it must have an inbuilt compass. And now, finally, in the last decade or so, a theory has been proposed, and it's based on this idea of quantum entanglement. The notion that even Einstein hated, he called it mm. spooky action at a distance. Two separated particles can somehow remain in the same joined quantum state and so be aware of each other. So what you do to one, instantaneously, <laughs> into sort of faster than light, what we call non-local, uh, instantaneously affects the other one, wherever, however far it may be. The idea is that inside the robin's eye, uh, because we know that, that whatever this compass is, it's light sensitive. Yeah. Uh, so a photon of light enters the robin's eye and it creates a pair of entangled electrons. So electrons sitting on two atoms and these electrons are spinning. Now, in quantum mechanics, particles don't spin clockwise or anticlockwise. If you're not looking, they do both at once. They're in what's called a superposition. And in an entangled state, a pair of electrons are both spinning clockwise and anticlockwise at the same time. And it's that balance between which direction they're spinning and how one influences the other that is very sensitive to the Earth's magnetic field. So a tiny 
tiny perturbation. The Earth's magnetic field is so weak, it's a it's hundred times weaker than a fridge magnet. You know, imagine holding a magnet up to your head mm. and, and having that mess with the chemistry your, of your brain. It's, it's, it's nonsense. And yet it does. And entangled electrons can be sensitive to the magnetic field and that triggers the signal that sends, that's sent to the bird's brain telling it which direction to go. It's the only theory we have to explain how this chemical compass works inside the robin's retina. doesn't make it right. It will be fantastic if it were correct. We, we have yet to have experimental verification. But the notion that quantum entanglement, the weirdest of the counterintuitive aspects of quantum mechanics helps a robin navigate every year when it migrates is just such a wonderful idea. I, I hope it's correct. And it is, I mean, it does sound like a wacky idea, but actually it's not that different from how an MRI scanner works. There's a description of what an MRI scanner does to your body. We, we, we forget that MRI <laughs> scanner is, is, is operating on quantum mechanics. It's <laughs> the idea of spin. In this case, the spin of protons, hydrogen nuclei, and superposition of the <laughs> spinning in both ways at once. An MRI scanner is a quantum mechanical process, but we forget about that, and we sort of, oh no, you know, well, we, we don't want to know. We don't want to know about that. And people can, <laughs> can, can, can to study, you know, uh, uh, an MRI scan image without knowing any quantum mechanics at all. So no, quantum mechanics is all pervasive. It's just that you know, physicists and chemists have had nearly a century of uh, not being comfortable with it, but at least coming to terms with the weirdness of quantum mechanics. And now biologists are discovering that actually. They have to come to terms with it inside living cells. And remembering that um, biology has had three and a half billion years mm-hmm. to try to perfect this kind of technology that we're trying to do at the moment with quantum technology is a big, useful, great thing in the future. Of course, some quantum technologies are already out there, like MRI scanners, and there's plenty more in the future that will be developed. But biology has been around for three and a half billion years. If there's any advantage to be gained from manipulating stuff at the molecular level, which life does, that depend on quantum mechanics, then life is likely to have discovered it, and probably a long time ago. So another example then, John Joe, so what is the quantum biology implications for photosynthesis, which is another thing? Yeah, this was, the, this was the, really probably the experiment that set the uh, field the most uh, alight. Uh, there was an experiment that was performed in, in a few labs in, in the US and uh, uh, in California and also in, uh, in Canada. Um, and uh, we described in the book when the news of this experiment, because it was, a, uh, it was a big, important experiment, it was published in Nature or Science, I can't remember which, and then it made it to the New York Times and uh, a quantum theoretical group who were trying to develop a quantum computer or working out how to develop a quantum computer at MIT, picked up a copy of the New York Times, which, which uh, had an article saying that plants were quantum computers. And they all fell about laughing. This was totally crazy. And probably it was pretty crazy, I suppose. But uh, then they looked into it and discovered that at least it had some elements of, uh, of truth in there. The scientists who did the experiments, uh, uh, Greg Engel and Graham Fleming, they fired lasers at photosynthesis complexes. And these are what capture light energy and turn it into electrical energy um, and then chemical energy. Uh, they were studying it by firing laser light and then looking at the kind of reflection of that laser light. And what they found was it was reflected in beats, as they called them, mm-hmm. quantum beats, that the energy that was reflected came in beats. And this was a sign of quantum coherence, one of those other weird aspects of quantum mechanics, which allows particles to travel in many different paths at once. 
And this seems to solve a problem for the photosynthetic complex in which the light is absorbed in one place and it has to be delivered to another place. The problem is that this photosynthetic complex is packed full of all the wrong kind of places for it to turn to. So mostly, if you work it out, mostly the light ought to get lost, but it doesn't. It has a nearly 100% efficiency in optimal conditions. And this has always been a puzzle to biologists. And uh, what seems to be happening is that a, a system is using this uh, a kind of quantum walk in which the energy is converted to a quantum wave, which does travel through all paths simultaneously. And that's where, how it finds its way to the, uh, uh, to the reaction center where the energy is turned into chemical energy. And this is indeed some, a form of quantum computing. It's solving a problem using quantum mechanics. So there was some truth in that the New York Times article, although not quite the kind of quantum computing that was mentioned in the article. It was still, still had an element of truth there. Jim, what sort of things are going on right now? Where is this field heading? What experiments are going on? Most of the work, the advances, are being done in laboratories, so experimental rather than theoretical. And it's, it's biochemistry. So it's essentially developing the techniques. And John Joe's the, the expert on this rather than me, but it's, it's experimental techniques, spectroscopy, the idea... The, I mean, there's a, there's a whole field of chemistry called femtochemistry. Mm-hmm. Femto being a ten to the minus fifteen femtoseconds, mm-hmm. which relates to the narrowness of the pulse of laser light that you can fire at these large, complicated biomolecules. You basically zap them with pulses of lasers and see what bounces back. And from that, you can learn something about the, the structure of these molecules. So that's where the, or the, the main experiments are. There are certainly, like Luca Turin, doing experiments with fruit flies, those uh, stalwarts of, uh, of uh, <laughs> biologists. You know, to, but, but also, there's a lot of work in computational physics and chemistry. And so you know, the work that we've been doing at Surrey with, with my PhD student, Adam Godbeer, was to model DNA, uh, theoretically, mm-hmm. in a computer, and then see what the chances are that a proton, a hydrogen bond between two strands of DNA that link that whole two nucleotides together, that whether that proton can quantum tunnel across from one site to another. Mm-hmm. And you, you have to rely on the sophistication of your computer model, and that can then tell you the likelihood that this is really happening, and maybe answer questions like, does quantum tunneling play a role in mutations in DNA? But of course, it's, it's even harder to do the real experiment, because that's the big difference between doing quantum biology and quantum physics. Uh, in quantum physics, you can isolate your system that you want to study. You can remove all other extraneous uh, uh, mechanisms and just tweak that one dial and see what, ha- what happens if I turn the temperature down. What happens if I increase the magnetic field? You can't do that in a living cell. There's thousands of things going on. You can't switch off all the other chemical re- reactions just to look at the isolated one you have. So it's a big challenge. But you know, cleverer people than me are going to be taking this forward. Yeah, uh, actually, one of the other really interesting aspects I think where the science is really going forward is in a very surprising way and that's um, uh, looking at at the question how is it these quantum effects manage to be maintained in hot wet cells Uh, this was the big surprise that these quantum phenomena are occurring in in the kind of environments where they shouldn't be happening they should have been destroyed by all the random vibrations that are taking place in hot wet systems and what is coming out in the last half decade or so is uh, a really interesting work which suggests that what makes life so different is that instead of the quantum effects being destroyed by random vibrations in life 
the random vibrations actually maintain them. It seems to be able to actually use random vibrations to maintain quantum states. And this is a really exciting and interesting part of uh, uh, quantum biology that could actually go back into physics because physicists want to maintain quantum states and want to make quantum computers that will work on the bench. And if we could use the kind of insights that are coming out of biology, then maybe we could build quantum computers. Just one more question then, and this is for both of you. Well, two things actually. What does it mean for yourselves? But also, I guess, what does it mean for this field that the book has been shortlisted for this prize? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, a book being shortlisted for prizes is great. I, I don't think we, you know, we, we, we thought this is great for quantum biology as a field. After all, this is so far the only book on quantum biology. That's, I mean, one of the motivations for writing this book was that being, we've been dabbling in this area as amateurs while still doing our day jobs in physics and biology for, for many years. And then suddenly with the field gaining in momentum and, and these new, new papers being published almost monthly in, in Nature and Science, the, the top journals, we thought we have to put a marker down and let's try and get this, you know, to talk about the status of the field. Certainly being shortlisted for the prize, I think, would raise the profile of the subject. Mm. What it means, hopefully, is that we can start getting funding for this area because it does really fall between the cracks. It's still seen as neither physics nor chemistry nor biology. So giving it some sort of profile and platform and credibility might help provide funding. We can then get the students and the postdocs to work in it and really make some progress. Yeah, and I guess uh, uh, the other aspect of your question, what does it mean more personally, and I, I guess I'm probably speaking for both of us, it's some um, validation that actually what we tried very hard to do was actually working. Mm. It was tough for us to like, write this book. We write in different styles, we have different interests, and uh, uh, we have different areas of ignorance and different ways of explaining stuff. And actually what kind of worked was that when I wrote something down, it didn't make sense to Jim, and then I would have to write it so as a, a physicist could understand the biology, and vice versa, that uh, when Jim wrote something, I would throw my arms in the air and say, I don't have a clue what's going on here, and then Jim would have to rewrite it. So that took a lot of rewriting, a lot of going backwards and forwards to uh, stamp a level of understanding through the entire book that we hope is accessible to readers who uh, are, are neither biologists nor physicists. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's really what we hope to... Because we think that the science is really exciting, and it's not just exciting to scientists. It's giving us a fundamental new insight into life that I think will be, um, will be exciting and interesting to anyone who's interested in life. Right, I've been talking to Jim Elkalili and John Joe McFadden. We've been talking about their book, Life on the Edge, The Coming of Age of Quantum Biology. Thank you both for coming in and telling me about it. Thank you. Pleasure. It's a pleasure. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Michael Brooks. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. John Butterworth is a leading physicist on the Large Hadron Collider and head of physics and astronomy at UCL. He writes the popular life and physics blog for The Guardian and has written articles for a range of publications, including The Guardian and New Scientist. He was awarded the Chadwick Medal of the Institute of Physics in 2013 for his pioneering work in high-energy particle physics, especially in the understanding of hadronic jets. And he's the author of Smashing Physics, Inside the World's Biggest Experiment, which is on the shortlist for the 2015 Royal Society Winton Prize for Science Books. John, thank you very much for coming in to tell me about it. It's a pleasure, thanks for asking. I guess, first of all, let's talk about how the Large Hadron Collider came about. I wasn't aware, till I read it in your book, there was already a, a similar facility there, sort of the footprint of another facility. Yeah, that's right. There. I mean, it's really, uh, it's built on infrastructure that's been... Um, been growing at CERN, which is this big lab, the big European mm-hmm. lab um, just outside Geneva. It's built on infrastructure that's been growing there since it was founded in 1954, um, kind of to try and rescue um, European physics from the dis- disasters of the Second World War. And really, the lead in nuclear and what was then nuclear and became particle <coughs> physics was uh, was really in the United States and to some extent in Russia at that point. Then, and it, it, yeah, CERN started with a couple of smallish machines that weren't even competitive with what we had in the UK at the time, and gradually. Um, became the place where European countries pooled their expertise and the culmination of that was this 27 kilometre tunnel which was built around the time I um, was finishing my undergraduate physics mm-hmm. uh, in 1989, something like that and it was uh, used initially to, to collide electrons and positrons together which is a very clean, nice experiment they annihilate because the positron is the antiparticle of an electron and there's no mess, you get a lot of mess when you collide <laughs> protons together but the disadvantage is that you, you can't get them to as high an energy as you can with a proton um, mm-hmm. because they, they lose energy when you go around the corners um, synchrotron radiation basically so you keep pumping energy in but then at some point you reach a point of diminishing returns where they're, they're losing so much energy going around the corners they're losing as much energy as you can possibly pump in with your, your radio frequency cavities so that, that did a, a great program of physics basically through the 90s in this 27 kilometer tunnel and there were discussions when they were building it how big do you really need to build this tunnel to do that and at some point so we, you know, we'll probably want to do something else later with this tunnel so we'll build it a bit bigger than strictly we need for the E plus C minus for LEP which is that electron positron experiment so 
they did. And, uh, and then they took that, they closed that down in 2000, which is quite controversial, but in, in general it had finished its programme and we were already by that stage working on building the Large Hadron Collider, which was to go in its place. So they ripped all that stuff out and, and spent some time putting in the magnets, the new magnets and the new technology that you needed to get protons going around. And protons can go to factors of 10 more, more energy than electrons can, and that's what we've seen the benefit of with the IHC. So it's, a, it's an interesting example of the stability of planning, if you like. Mm-hmm. The European, British, and, and the rest of the European certain member state taxpayers have been paying about two quid a year into this thing for a long time. And in today's money, the budget hasn't really gone up, mm-hmm. but the fact that it's cumulative really helps with these huge projects. You can have a planning horizon that's stable and you can invest for the future and see the benefits of those investments. So it's, it's, it's a good model, it seems to work. How did you get involved initially? I mean, you just mentioned that you were there, you've basically been there all through <laughs> the development. No, no, I'm a jolly come lately, really. I only joined about, what, 15 years ago? <laughs> no, uh, well, not quite. Yeah, about 15 well, years ago. Well, the business <laughs> But the um, no, but the the Atlas experiment, which is yeah. the detector that I work on, was, was I think uh, approved in the late nineties. I can't remember the exact date. I wasn't involved at that point. I think it was ninety six. It was formed a bit earlier than that. Mm-hmm. But it, so I wasn't one of the first people on my experiment. I was working on another experiment in Hamburg at the time. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I've been on it a long time now. Yes, I feel like I, I'm, a, I'm a true member of Atlas. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it takes a long time to realise these projects. I guess before we talk about what happened. Let's have as simply as possible, <laughs> if that is possible. Let's have a brief recap of the uh, you know, the standard model of particle physics, and then we'll ultimately get to what was the um, the Large Hadron Collider for. Yeah, um, well, maybe it might be easier to start with what the Large Hadron Collider is for, because mm-hmm. that's actually simpler. What you get with high energy colliders is you get access to shorter distances. You can think of them as a, as a microscope. There's this relationship in physics between... We, we look at things with waves, and uh, the wavelength of the wave sets the smallest thing you can see. So like with radar, you can see ships and planes because mm-hmm. it's, it's got wavelengths of metres long. And our eye, optical light is nanome- hundreds of nanometers. You can see small stuff. If you want to see really small stuff, you need really small waves, which means really high frequency, which means really high energy. So the raison d'etre of basically all high-energy colliders is to see small stuff and see what matter is made of. And the standard model, then, to get back to your... So that's the purpose of the LHC, really. It's just the biggest, best microscope we could build. But the, uh, the, the standard model is our current theory of, of what goes on at these really tiny distances. So remember, we're talking not just inside atoms, we're talking yeah. deep inside the protons and neutrons that are in the atomic nucleus. And deep inside there are, are quarks and gluons, which are what make up protons and neutrons. Gluons, just the things that stick quarks together, hence the name. And, uh, and electrons as well. And those things, as far as we know, are... Of what we call they're fundamental, which sounds very grandiose, but really just means we haven't broken them yet. Yeah. We don't, there's nothing in them, as far as we know. They're not made of anything else. And the standard model is the theory that describes how they interact. So it contains electromagnetism, which is the theory of light and magnets and electricity. Um, it contains a strong interaction, which is what binds the atomic nucleus together. And it contains a weak nuclear force, which operates on tiny distances inside the nucleus, but is um, essential in, for instance, the processes that make the sun work or mm-hmm. in radioactive beta decay. Um, it doesn't manifest itself much in everyday life, but it's very important because we wouldn't be here without it. And they're the fundamental forces and particles and how they interact. And uh, kind of key to all of that 
was a very basic question, which is how if something's infinitely small and interacts via those forces, how can it actually have mass? Mm-hmm. And it's actually rather difficult. Well, it's difficult to imagine that. <laughs> it's, it's difficult to imagine something infinitely small anyway. We don't really have a way of getting a grip on that. But it's also mathematically and theoretically, even once you've got into the quantum mechanics, the quantum field theory of, how, of what an electron is and what a photon is mm-hmm. and what a quark is, it's actually hard to make the quarks heavy. And in fact, the top quark, which is as far as we know fundamental, is, is 175 times as heavy as the proton. And the proton, we know most of its mass, doesn't come, it comes from binding energy of the gluons. But if something's not... That's because it's made of quarks and gluons. But if something's not made of anything else, there's no way it can get its mass from the binding energy. So you have to find another way of doing it. <clears throat> the other way of doing it was uh, invented by Robert Brout and um, Francois Englert and Peter Higgs in the early 60s which was to fill the whole universe with a, an energy field, a new quantum mechanical energy field. It's quite a radical step, really, just mm-hmm. to get a bit of the maths right. And that was kind of needed. It's by interacting with this energy field that things acquire mass. And that's the only way they could make the maths come out right for this theory. So that's the, yeah, that's the, the theory that that's was sort the of postulated by those people. All the way through this book, there's a sort of playful tension, shall we say, between the idea of the you know the theoreticians and the uh, the experimentalists which is De- what you are yeah. so how is the LHC supposed to find it um, experimentalists often aren't very subtle we go for some quite clever technology but the ideas are not very subtle the large hadron collider is designed one of the things it's designed to do is to smack this background field of the universe really hard and make it wobble. <laughs> and uh, the wobble is essentially, okay, it's a quantum excitation in the, in the vacuum, ex- uh, in the, the field um, that has a non-zero vacuum expectation value. Basically, it's hitting this um, background energy field of the universe really hard. The wobble manifests itself as a new particle, and that particle is the Higgs boson. And that's the evidence that this theory that was developed in the early 60s, that how, which is how we understand the mass of fundamental particles by interacting with this field. That wobble is the evidence that the field is there at all. Because if the field is anywhere, it's everywhere. So yeah. it's very hard to find a, a, a experimental evidence that it's there. You can't take a bit of the universe with no field. Where it's not there. Yeah, yeah. and compare it with another bit that is there. Yeah. Um, so you have to find the only real solid experimental prediction of this theory of the mass of fundamental particles was that there should be this wobble, this new boson, which we call the Higgs boson. That's what we saw in 2012. When all this, I mean, back in the day, I guess, before all of this really sort of got going, the actual hunting, you were quite sceptical... Yeah, yeah. we were in a nice position with the the LHC, and obviously we were doing this, building this microscope to see things people had never seen before, and we were hoping for surprises, but that's that's a lot of money and time and effort to put in on just a vague hope of surprises so it's nice to have a question you know you can answer and by the nature of this this theory from Brad Englert and Higgs we knew that this particle had to be there and if this theory was right and even more important in a way we knew that if we didn't see it the theory was wrong and it wasn't there because we knew roughly where it was we didn't know exactly by where really I mean what its mass was actually because that's the energy reach of the machine tells you what mass of particle you can see so we were in a really nice position. We had a totally falsifiable theory, basically, that we, we knew if we didn't see it, we'd prove that theory wrong, and if we did see it, 
obviously the theory was right. To me, that was the drive. It was finding the answer. I mm-hmm. thought the answer would be no. I thought the answer would be there's no Higgs boson. It's such a weird object. Yeah. And, you know, it's nothing else like it in the standard model. And this business of filling the whole universe with a non-zero quantum energy field to get the maths right just sounded too impossible for me. I could see the maths worked. It was kind of elegant at some level, but it just looked a bit ad hoc and a bit... Just a long, a long, long way for human reasoning to go mm-hmm. to take principles of underlying principles like um, symmetries and stuff which which work very well we know but this was such a reach to predict this completely new kind of object um, I thought now we, we've got to be missing a trick here so I thought the answer would be no but I knew that we'd get the answer and that's what I really cared about and and the gradual I mean it's in the book the gradual pushing me into the corner that yeah okay I'm, I'm taking this more and more seriously as we as we go along that it might actually be there and to see it actually an elegant but strange mathematical idea lead to such a definite prediction for the physical universe and see that reproducibly happen in real data is just an astonishing experience. I guess that's really what the book's about, mm. actually. But, I mean, just to, to, to reiterate that, we were trying to prove the existence or not of the Higgs boson. So yeah. if, we, if it had not existed... I don't like the words trying to prove. We're trying to find out. Yeah. That's what we're doing. Okay. Uh, we're not trying to prove anything or disprove anything. You're just trying to find out what the answer is. But if, if you'd have found out that the answer wasn't it, it wasn't there, yeah. that would have been an equally valid... It, it would. It would have been a much harder sell, I think, to, to some <laughs> of the people who paid the bills. But personally, I think we, should, we would have been prepared for that. And honestly, from a physics point of view, it would have been just as exciting. I mean, the kind of things that that would have implied would be that, say, the weak force becomes much stronger at those energies. There had to be some new physics. It couldn't be just, oh, the standard model still works and you should have built a bigger machine and you'll find the Higgs if you build a bigger machine. Yeah. couldn't have been that. Yeah, because the standard model became internally inconsistent, like the energies we were, we're studying now. So it was either with the Higgs there or the theory is eats itself, basically. There's no, makes no predictions. Mm-hmm. So we could have found something else remarkable. We could have just have found a blank space where the Higgs should have been. But either way, it would have shown us that we'd reached a limit of the standard model. What we've got now is that the standard model works in a whole new energy range. Which is equally exciting, but you know, it would have been great times anyway for physicists. It would have been a lot harder writing a book about how we hadn't found a thing. I don't know, maybe, maybe it wouldn't, maybe it would have been just as much fun, but it's certainly from a physics point of view, it would have been just as interesting. I'm Hannah Fry, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. into Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to John Butterworth. We're talking about his book Smashing Physics Inside the World's Biggest Experiment, which is shortlisted for the Royal Society Winton Prize for Science Books this year. And John, so we've we've just described this 27 kilometre long, big polo shaped thing under the uh, Swiss and French countryside. There's a start to the thing and, you know, beams go off around it. And then right at the end of the thing is your thing, Atlas. So let's 
Let's talk about what Atlas is and, and what role that plays. Sure. Actually, of course, it's a circle, so it doesn't, strictly speaking, have an end. Um, and uh, the, what, it's the last segment, isn't it? Um, isn't it? Is it the last It depends segment? which way around you go, right? Yeah. They're going either way. So it's either the first or the last, depending which point. And they on switched being it on. on. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. They sent them around that way. I think just to keep us waiting <laughs> as long as they could. Yeah, there are actually four. So what, what it Atlas is, is, is uh, a particle physics detector. You can think of it as, as a, the biggest, fastest, most high-resolution digital camera that we know how to build, mm-hmm. um, just designed to take pictures of what happens when these protons collide. And actually, there are four of them. There are, there, are, there are four places on the on the ring where the beams are brought into collision, mm-hmm. um, and so we have our rivals diametrically opposite as CMS, and there are two other experiments, Alice and LXCB, which are also doing physics with this thing. But yeah, Atlas is, as you say, so when they, when we sent the first beam round the ring, they, they went through every other experiment until they finally got to Atlas, and that was when you knew made a complete circuit. But when it's running, of course, we are getting data at the same time, and. It's basically a, a, a it's a size of an office block, essentially Atlas, and it's it's a cylindrical structure with concentric cylinders of different technologies. Which um, I mean, some of them are actually um, silicon detectors, very like what's in the digi- digital camera, in fact. Mm-hmm. And there's other stuff there to measure the energy. There's magnetic fields which bend the particles and tell you, so you can measure the momentum. And in the end. It's just designed to catch the debris from a proton-proton collision. And having measured that debris, we can extrapolate back to what happened at the very, very short distances, which is what we're interested in. It's been compared by, I forget who, trying to understand the internal workings of two watches by smashing them to pieces to get next against each other to see where the bits go. But um, it's, yeah, it's a little more subtle than that, but not much. <laughs> Let's go back to September 2008, when... Yeah, so the great fanfare of the world's press, this, mm. this thing was first switched on. And then shortly afterwards, what happened? Yeah, that was not a good time. Um, so nine days afterwards, actually, um, so we were definite nine-day wonder. It blew up, basically broke. Nothing, nothing particularly uh, nuclear, nothing to do with the Big Bang that we were trying to study, nothing to do with the protons at all. In fact, mm-hmm. when it failed, there were no protons in the machine. But uh, the big superconducting magnets that bend the beam, which is actually the real challenge, is because the beam really wants to go in a straight line. Yeah. It's Newton's laws, it just wants to go in a straight line. So bending it around <coughs> and making, a, making the, the beams collide with each other is the trick. And they, that requires huge currents um, to, to make the magnetic fields. All this stuff is superconducting. A, a join between two of the magnets stopped being superconducting. Um, and basically melted like a fuse instantaneously. And then there was a spark went across the gap and punctured the containment vessel for this pressurised liquid helium, which keeps the whole thing cold. And uh, when you let pressurised liquid helium go, it becomes less pressurised gaseous helium very, very quickly, which is essentially a big explosion. (coughs) So it caused a huge amount of damage. It was very discouraging. As I say in the book, in the long run, it's all part of the two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. It was pretty embarrassing having been so, you know, basically having a party that our experiment was finally working to then have it break in a very public fashion nine days later. But in the end, you know, it, that's what research is like. With the other, Lynn Evans, who was the lead project um, physicist on the Large Hadron Collider, said, you know, it's its own prototype. No one's ever done anything like this before, and you have to take risks like that. No one was hurt. There was no danger. Set us back by 18 months. Um, we didn't waste that time. Either. Yeah, so I was going to say, what happens in that 18 months while you're waiting for we, the we did a lot. We were a lot better prepared for the data yeah. when it finally came than we would have been. Everything was a bit of a rush. You mentioned at the beginning this Chadwick Prize. One of the things I do is worry about hadronic jets. Yeah. And I have to tell you, we did a lot better at hadronic jets 
with an 18 month delay than we would have done if we'd have gone ahead um, in 2008. So it's not obvious that it really delayed us very much in terms of, say, finding the Higgs boson or doing the other physics that we've done with the machine in the end, because we once we did get the data, we were able to whip through it really quickly. What it did do was mean that we, we ran at um, half the energy, the design energy, than we would have done otherwise. Now, we were lucky the Higgs mass was within reach of that energy. It might It could have been that that wasn't the case, but we were lucky with that. And in a way now, we've, got, we've just gone up to closer to the design energy uh, now. Uh, we're just, just below the design energy now, so we've nearly doubled the energy um, since 2012 when we stopped. And we just turned on again beginning of this year. And, uh, and so now we're exploring, you know, turning up the energy is like turning up the power of the microscope. So we're looking into the heart of matter even more closely now, uh, as well as doing further studies of this new Higgs boson that we found and other stuff. So, well, so I want to get to what, what's going on yeah, now. Yeah. In a in a while, or what's gone after the, uh, the the discovery? But let's talk about that. I mean, what what does again? Let's let's focus on um, Atlas, I guess. So, what does the once the expect once the the hydrocolloid is going, mm-hmm. and you're you know you you're starting to get data, you're into the process of, of looking. What does it look like? What, what does the data the look data like? Look yeah. like yeah. Um, ones and zeros, like L data. <laughs> now it it goes through, the the data rate is so high that we can't possibly take it all and t- say take a photograph of each individual collision and then. Yeah. And then look at them and say, okay, that looks like a nice one. Let's measure it. Uh, obviously, a lot of this has to be done online and has to be done very, very fast. In fact, there's custom-built electronics that actually does a very, very fast filter on the collisions, and on, we only save about 100 collisions a second, mm-hmm. and there are millions, and billions of them happening in a second. Uh, most of them are pretty dull. Most of the time, the protons don't really hit each other very hard, or they're just glance, glancing collision. So we're looking for the ones where two of the quarks or gluons inside the protons really had a very head-on collision and they produce something interesting something heavy or something with a lot of momentum transverse to the beam so those algorithms sort that out and in the end the uh, we, we go through all kinds of stages of saying okay this then might be interesting so let's look at it a bit more closely and then you reduce the data rates you have a bit more time to look at it more carefully and do that process over and over again mm-hmm. so in the end you get the, the few thousand or hundreds of thousands or in some cases even just tens of events that you want for your thesis or your paper that you can see and the data is actually found out on, on a worldwide computing grid which uh, every major country has what we call a tier one cloud center in there which has some subset of the data and the data is duplicated all around the world so that it doesn't get lost if anything happens at CERN and that it gets processed there and in the end gets out to the universities and in the end onto the physicists laptops and, and we write papers with it. What was the point that sort of constituted definitive, I'm going to use the word proof, <laughs> that, the, that the Higgs field existed? At what point right. could, you, could you sort of you know, definitely go because I know there was a um, there were there were false starts. There yeah. were there was uh, accidental releases that you know to the, to the press that it had been found when it hadn't. And yeah, you call them accidental. I think some of them were malicious. But yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it boils down to in the end the the, the signature uh, that this field is there is, which means the Higgs boson is there. Boils down to is there a bump in a given distribution or not? Is this distribution smooth or does it have a little bump in it in the end? And, and of course, when you don't have much data, there are bumps everywhere. The statistical noise just gives you bumps the whole time. So it's like rolling a dice over and over again and, and get collecting more and more statistics. And as you do that, the error bars shrink and most of the bumps vanish and one of them stayed. And that's the bottom line. That process, of course, is fraught with false alarms and sometimes you can be fooled by a statistical fluctuation for a while and and also and therefore even if there is a real bump there you don't know it's real until you have enough statistics um, to rule out the the idea that it might be just noise and that happened over over i mean by the end of 2011 we had some hints there was something there which 
I started to take seriously. They were by no means a proof of a new particle, but they were certainly the balance of probability shifted strongly in favour of them being exposed. And I would say even by the end of 2011. And then um, I remember an internal collaboration meeting on Atlas um, when we got our first look at the um, data, the new data from 2012. It would have been about Easter, I guess, in 2012. And uh, and seeing that these suggestive little peak was actually there in the completely independent new data set. And at that point, I thought, yeah, it's there. So that was when, when my gut feeling changed from being there can't possibly be a Higgs to thinking, well, mm-hmm. maybe there is, to then thinking, yeah, there probably is. And at that point, I thought, yeah, there is, really. Because <laughs> <laughs> then that's when you've got to be really careful and not fool yourself because yeah. you think you know the answer and you don't really. And it, it surprised me that although I'd seen then that we collected more data and I saw other confirmatory plots from within Atlas. So I thought that by July 3rd, 2012, I thought, Atlas had discovered the Higgs, and I thought I believed that yeah. really properly. And then on, on July 4th, when we showed it, I also saw the data from CMS um, arrivals, and it was a completely independent experiment, and they had the same thing. Yeah. There was another level of, convinced, of conviction there, yeah. actually. I realised that some little bit of me hadn't actually believed our own experiment until someone else confirmed it. I expect they, they felt the same way in some sense. It shows you why you should do every experiment at mm-hmm. least twice. But, uh, but yeah, so it was a serious... It's, Thinking back, and it was very good when I was writing a book, I had contemporaneous blogs and contemporaneous diary entries and things yeah. like this. It was amazing how often I told myself the wrong story about what I thought <laughs> at a given time. I had to go back and read the blog and keep myself honest. No, no, I wasn't that smart at that point. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, most people that listen to this show will remember that, you know, the sort of press conference in July 2012 right. and incredibly complex particle physics becoming like a, you know, a, a huge worldwide news story. Yeah. And, I you think, know, the, I've wondered why that is, and I think whatever reasons behind that and, and the, the abstruse theory and the horribly complicated detectors the fact that it boiled down to is there a bump in this line or not and it's a simple yes or no answer the implications may be very complex but there was at least a moment yeah. it's like a goal in football did it go in or not you can answer the question immediately and I think it was, it was lovely it was uh, very very exciting and just wonderful that so many people shared the excitement also as you mentioned in the book if you, you can explain something easier something complicated easier if you stick it in comic sans there is that yeah. <laughs> Fabiola's uh, that, that was really funny. It was there was a point I was watching it on Twitter, and there was a point where of the trending topics of the top five, four of them were things like LHC and Higgs boson and whatnot. So, and, and the fifth one was Comic Sans. <laughs> so then, I mean, you've already you've already hinted that everybody didn't then the next day pack up and pack up and go home. What happens? What was that discovery? That's not the end of the standard model of particle physics. You don't close the book on that. What does it mean for the future of research? Yeah, there are a couple of things there. So one is that was the moment we knew we discovered something new and we knew it looked very like the Higgs in the standard model, but there's a, there's a lot of cross-checking and precision measurement you have to do to really say, is it really playing the role that it was designed for? Now, we already know, and um, we knew fairly quickly, that it was involved in the origin of mass, and that's why Higgs and Englert received the Nobel Prize a mm-hmm. years later. But that doesn't mean it's exactly the standard model. It doesn't mean that it's giving mass to all the particles the way we think it should. And so we'd like to get that kind of nailed down more carefully, and we certainly will do that. But it's not really just an exercise in tidying up loose ends because while the standard model now actually is complete, if this is really the standard model Higgs, um, doesn't predict any new particles. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got everything sorted from that point of view. Unfortunately, the standard model can't be a theory of everything. It doesn't even include gravity, for yeah. instance. Yeah. It doesn't explain why there's so much more matter than antimatter around in the universe. It doesn't 
explain what dark matter is, which there's very strong astrophysical evidence that there's, there's uh, more invisible matter out there in the universe than, in fact, usually more than we can see. So there are a lot of other, these kind of loose ends. The, the standard model, while it's kind of internally consistent, doesn't go anywhere from it. And the hope is that the Higgs is such a fundamental... Well, there are two hopes. One is that the Higgs is such a fundamentally new object that it will be a kind of bridge, a kind of portal to some of these other... answers to some of these other questions. Um, for instance, maybe there's some asymmetry in the way it connects to matter and antimatter that explains that. Or maybe it gives, if it gives mass to dark matter, then some dark matter should be producible in principle if you're making a Higgs boson as well. Maybe it can radiate some dark mm-hmm. matter. Those are other reasons for wanting to really study the Higgs very carefully itself. And, and also, just to come back to the idea of the Large Hadron Collider as a, as a big microscope, we're looking more closely at nature than we've ever done before. Mm-hmm. We're hoping that some of these clues to some of these open questions are in there. I have to be honest, we're looking under the lamppost. You know, <laughs> we, we, we know there's this pool of light that we can look in because the LHC has got a given power. Yeah. There's no equivalent question as that we had before that we knew the answer was under the lamppost because yeah. the Higgs boson we knew we'd either see it under that lamppost or it wasn't there at all now we're, we're, uh, we're looking we are looking in new territory and we, we have things we hope we'll find in that new territory but there's no guarantees we're really on an exploration now well, we're just about finished it just remains to say congratulations on the, on the shortlisting what does that what does that mean to you? Oh, well, it helps with my imposter syndrome about being a writer. <laughs> I feel like a proper writer now. <laughs> and some of those other people have read my book and think it's worth putting on the list with those other good books. I, it means a lot. I'm really, really honoured to be there. And I, I hope it helps because I think this book is, is it's a little bit hard to categorise. It starts off with a list of things it's not. And um, I think in the end, if I'd have thought it through now, I'd think, yeah, it's a memoir of a really exciting time in physics mm-hmm. with proper physics in it and also the humdrum human side of the stuff described as well and sometimes amusing, I hope, sort of human side of the stuff. But I think it's a little bit harder to categorise than some other kinds of science books. So I hope that the exposure it gets through the prize will, will help people think of it a little more in that sense. And I hope people enjoy it and find it educational. And yeah, I'm, I'm just really, really honoured to be on the list. I'm looking forward to the evening. So I've been talking to John Butterworth. We've been talking about his book, Smashing Physics, Inside the World's Biggest Experiment. John, thank you very much for telling me about it. It's been great, thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.